Good morning, everybody. It is April 18th, 2022. I am Lisa Salberg, founder and CEO of the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association. And you are listening to a live broadcast of Tales from the Heart. And if you are listening live on our Facebook, you'll be able to ask questions in a few moments. And um, if you're listening after the original broadcast, you can post your questions either on the Facebook feed, YouTube feed, or through our Tales from the Heart podcast communication portal. So um, I am joined today by a, a friend and colleague, Dr. Aslan Turrer from UT Southwestern, um, all the way down in Texas. Good morning, Aslan. Good morning. It's lovely to have you here today. And we're going to have a little bit of a different conversation. Typically on Tales from the Heart, we take deep dives into different matters related to HCM, management, research, life with, but we're going a little bit more global today. And we're going to be talking about the role of patient advocacy and how perceptions on advocacy may change throughout your life, depending upon circumstances. So for our viewers and listeners, could you tell us a little bit about yourself, your background? Sure. I uh, am the director with Mark Link of our hypertrophic cardiomyopathy COE at UT Southwestern in Dallas. I moved down here wow, about in 2009 uh, with my wife. Uh, we both had uh, done our training over at Duke. Um, I'm originally from the West Coast. I grew up in Las Vegas and did all my training in California. And my first experience with, um, you know, the United States was moving to North Carolina, where life was different than Vegas and LA and San Francisco. And uh, then I settled in, in Texas, and we've been here for, for a while now. Um, we started our program real small, and then gradually we kind of got some uh, crystallization with some partners, and, and then um, we got our CUE designation a few years ago. And um, we've had a, you know, great, great time and a great um, uh, community of patients with hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And I'm proud to have participated in that kind of from the beginning here. Um, on a personal note, I have uh, five kids. Um, they range from three years old to 11 and four boys and a girl. They're, um, three of them are in grade school and the other ones are kind of in preschool. And uh, we have a zillion pets. My wife just sent me a text message about um, a messy dog who just got the house dirty with all kinds of ripping things up. Um, guinea pigs, koi fish, we, we got it all busy household. So it sounds like an incredibly busy, chaotic, <clears throat> wonderful life you're living. Yeah, it's chaos. When we, weekends are, are the work week. And then we kind of look, my wife and I look forward to coming to work on Mondays for a little peace and quiet. So that you can help patients with cardiac disease uh, live a better life. Yeah. So um, that, that's taking it down a notch for you. So um, I came to know you just you know, a couple months, maybe a year before the Center of Excellence uh, application was submitted. Um, somebody I had worked very closely with for many years, Mark Link, had relocated um, down to Texas and introduced us and we got to know each other a little bit and uh, you know i, I want to kind of go back in time to you figuring out okay patient advocacy and hcm what does this actually mean and why do i really need to be involved with it or who is the hcma and why does it matter so what were your original impressions unvarnished please <laughs> yeah i mean um you know, frankly, I, I saw the HCMA as a, you know, a an organization that would help, um, I guess, coalesce patients into, you know, see its COEs, and um, which it which it does do, and and I I, I saw it mainly as a um, 
I guess it's a facilitator of the doctor patient relationship, if I can put it that way. So it was mainly its job, as I perceived it, was to match a patient and a physician together in that kind of, and that was kind of what I saw its role. And that was my perception of what the organization should do and, and what it was, you know, what it was sort of, uh, and, and what advocacy meant in terms of that. So that's, that's what I had seen the HCMA as that, that role. And we worked together quite well for a number of years. We had meetings together. I came down to Texas before COVID when we did things like that. And we educated patients together. And that was a lot of fun and, you know, very important work. And then something happened in your personal life. Yeah. Um, so around the time with COVID started, um, I started to feel really um, short of breath. So this is, and I kind of attributed it to who knows what. I, I, I don't know, wearing a mask all the time, allergies, something. I, I, I just kind of, I kind of blew it off. Um, I think in the back of my head, I thought something was, you know, something was wrong, but I just kind of did, didn't want to pay attention to it. I was too busy with everything else going on. And uh, I started to develop a cough, which again, I kind of just blew off and attributed to reflux or, you know, something else. And um, in March of 2021, I uh, developed a pneumonia and um, I was really pretty sick and uh, my doctor gave me some antibiotics and I got a whole bunch better and that might have been it but she, you know she wanted me to get a chest x-ray and I did and it looked really abnormal um, and uh, but you know it looked like a pneumonia it looked like a community acquired pneumonia yeah and um so she and I went back and forth. I, I have to say, I was, I remained so, such a bad patient. I, I thought, I don't need a follow-up x-ray. This is fine. And she insisted. And finally, I got another chest x-ray and never got any better. And then, um, and then she got one of the pulmonologists involved. And um, they kind of arm-twisted me to get a CAT scan. And I had a very abnormal CAT scan. This was kind of the end of, March of, um, of last year. And uh, the, the uh, CAT scan came back and, and they were for sure that I had tuberculosis or fungus. Wow. And um, insisted that I get a bronchoscopy. And I just thought this was pneumonia and I was so much better. And uh, I thought people were just making a lot out of nothing. Um, actually for my, for my bronch, for my bronch visit, I walked all the way from my house to the hospital with my, my dog. And that took me about, took me a couple hours to do. It was, uh, it was to prove to everybody that there was nothing wrong with me and they were kind of making a lot out of nothing. But, uh, I had my bronch and, um, I got, I got, uh, a phone call, uh, on the 8th of April of last year. Um, I had just come home from the grocery store. I went to the, you know, um, the kind of shishi grocery store to buy, you know, nice food to cook. I, I was forced to take the week off of my, after my bronc. I thought I was going to be chef that week. So I bought a bunch of food, spent several hundred dollars on groceries. And, and I got a call as I was pulling into my driveway from my pulmonologist who told me that I actually had um, a form of cancer or I had mucinous adenocarcinoma, which I'd never heard of. Um, he said it's a type of lung cancer and, um, and it was metastatic, it was stage four, um, which I knew wasn't good. I didn't know much beyond that, but um, I kind of got floored because I got a diagnosis of a cancer that was metastatic and I had never even heard of this thing. And, um, you know, it's, it's really cliche, I think, but it, 
I'm sure many of the people watching this video can can attest to this, but you get this diagnosis and it kind of hits you and you think, I thought two things. I thought I was going to wake up from a dream, but I never did. And um, this kind of, this couldn't happen to me because it this stuff doesn't happen to me to get a diagnosis like that. It's something that, you know, I've always been the star of my own life and to have that told to me is, it was just hard to, hard to process. So I'm going to pause you there for a second, because you've said a couple of things that regardless of the, the bad news, the diagnosis, there are these moments in life where we can go back to the day. We, we walk through the day because it was such a normal day until the words happened. And then well, nothing, nothing will ever be normal again. It'll be a new normal. It'll be different. It'll be okay in some cases, but it's never the same after as it was before. And we remember these days with such clarity as if our mind is saying, we, this is a little gift we want you to remember before the floor fell out, what it yeah. felt like. And I know many people describe the days that they were diagnosed with HCM similarly, like this was happening and that was happening and then boom. And you almost forget how to breathe for a while yeah. because it can't be real. I'm not sick, I'm okay. And you've given that news to people as a physician. And you were that voice. And now somebody's that voice to you. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. Um, Crazy. So, yeah, it's, it's, it's put everything in a different perspective to have that happen to you, for sure. So you get diagnosed with a rare cancer in your lung, you have no risk factors for lung cancer. You're not a smoker. You aren't living in a highly polluted environment. You just had bad luck and got a really terrible cancer. How did you find out information on that? Well, you know, um, I just, hit Google. And, you know, I mean, it, it probably at the beginning wasn't any more sophisticated than that. I mean, you know, there, there wasn't a conversation really between my um, lung doctor and I immediately afterward, um, you know, in terms of what this was and what it meant or anything else like that. And there was a fairly long, like, period between my diagnosis and I wouldn't say long, but, you know, it was felt long. It was just a few weeks, I guess, till I saw my, my oncologist for the first time. So um, that's a lot of time, as you know, to, to spend not knowing and to let, you know, to, to spend on the internet trying to find information. And I guess, you know, I, I, I had the benefit and the, and the, and the um, hindrance of being a doctor and I would go to PubMed and pull up all of these articles and trying to figure out as much information as I could. But I really, um, you know, there, there wasn't, you know, there's, there's a, there, I'm not saying there's not any material out there, but there's, you know, there's just, there wasn't a lot of, um, you know, high quality, large, you know, just large amount of data for what specifically I had. So, I was, um, you know, I have a form of lung cancer that's that's thrown in under the, um, you know, adenocarcinoma, uh, non-small cell lung cancer. And so it's it's subtyped within there, um, but it probably represents a percent or less of like total total lung cancer, somewhere 2.2% or, or, you know, up to a percent, something like that. And so it's, it's a relatively uncommon form of a kind of lung cancer that's very common. And so, um, you know, I'm sure many patients can identify with that, that kind of thing. They get kind of 
their diagnosis gets thrown in with other forms of cardiovascular disease or, you know, heart failure. And they're kind of feel like they are kind of within that, within this feel like they're being put into a category that doesn't quite necessarily fit what the, what they have, but it may be close and things may be this, there may be a lot more similarities and differences, but it's, you know, as a patient, it's not, it's not, it's not enough sometimes to, you want as much personalized information as you can. And sometimes that's really hard to find. And especially if you don't have a doctorate and you don't know how to research scientific literature, which you had the benefit of knowing, but still there wasn't a lot of translation, uh, translational information available about what this particular diagnosis meant to you in particular and what your treatment pathway was going to be. So you had to go find your own treatment pathway to a certain extent, didn't you? Yeah. And I'm, you know, I'll say I had a great, and I do have a great set of doctors and I I can't, I can't complain about them and and their management of me. I would say that, you know, that they're very knowledgeable and caring as they're, you know, they're the person that they've worked with for a long time. But, um, you know, the reality is that if you take a tumor that's uncommon, even if you're a lung cancer specialist, you, you can't have had a thousand people with this and you can't go back to clinical trials where there are a thousand people with this disorder and, and to know what, what is the same and what is different. So it's, it is, um, you know, that, that's just, that's just kind of the reality of the cards that we're dealt with sometimes. So we were supposed to do, we did do a big hearted warrior tour right in the midst of you needing therapy. And I get this call from, from your partner, Mark Link. And he says, I don't know if Aslan's going to be able to do this. And you had already called me and told me a little bit about what was going on. And I'm like, well, let's let that be up to Aslan. And you're like, I think I'm going to do it. I'm like, okay. And we sat there going, is he going to be sick? Cause he's having treatment. What's going to happen? And yeah, you're waiting that- for you to show up like half broken and you show up at the meeting. You're like, Hey, I'm here. I'm like, well, damn. I had had, that's funny that you remember that I had, um, I had received my first, uh, you know, I received my first dose of chemo the week before and, um, I was then kind of faced with a problem where they had repeated my CAT scan right before I got my chemo. And a lot of the metastatic appearing lesion stuff had improved with more antibiotics and some steroids. And then the the teams were wondering how much metastatic disease I had versus kind of localized disease. And so... I was faced with taking for granted that I had stage four disease, um, you know, to the other lung or, or maybe this was stage one or two or two disease. And I would need, it's just a surgical resection that could cure it. So um, I had received chemo, but there, the, although my oncologist felt strongly like I, that I had metastatic disease in the other lung, there was enough, question that this one of the carotid thoracic surgeons and my pulmonologist had advised that I get a biopsy on the other side to see what was there. Um, and, you know, there was some divergence of opinion and I just opted to have the surgeon go in there and take a wedge resection on my lung to know for sure and get as much tumor as or stuff as possible. And I think we had a meeting on Thursday and this was done on uh, Tuesday. And um, so I had, and I know you and many of the patients, you know, people watching this video have had chest tubes in for longer than me, but I insisted, I, I, I said, you know, I have to go to work 
I have clinic on Thursday and I have a really important thing to do on Thursday evening. So I have got to be out of the hospital. Oh, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. So um, on, on Tuesday, I told him, I was like, I don't want any pain meds because I need to get, I don't want to be hooked up to the PCA. I want to be off and I need to get out of the hospital on Wednesday. So um, I went on Tuesday, I had that procedure. The chest was a horrible experience that I can say, oh my gosh. Uh, I've been so, there, done that. Yeah, huh, you just cannot find a comfortable position. Well, horrible night's sleep. Um, and I'm sure you, uh, it's funny having this perspective. I've talked to many patients now with a cardiac surgery and I cannot sleep. Um, I feel like alone, tethered in my bed, um, like in four point restraints, essentially with the SCDs going off and IV, blood pressure cuff, the telemetry box, I'm totally trapped. And all I can do is like watch the clock and mm -hmm. wonder when the person, you know, person is going to come in to draw my labs in the morning and the sun come up and then I'll start to feel better again. So I'll never forget that. But then uh, next day I told them they wanted me to stay. And I was like, I, I can't, I, you need to pull the chest tube and I got to get out of here because I got to go to clinic on Thursday. And then we had our thing and I felt fine to be honest for it, but um, it was a little, it was a little rushed just because we had all that stuff, but I had to get it done when I had it done because I was concerned that the biopsy might not be diagnostic unless I had the, uh, you know, the tumor or whatever we were looking for removed properly. So um, anyway, so that was that. Yeah, it was a, it was an experience, but it was. It was we we no had an alternative plan. Yeah. If you weren't feeling well, we're like, he doesn't have to come. We understand he just had major surgery and there you show up and you didn't even look like anything had happened. You look yeah. perfectly normal. Yeah. Like, fine. Yeah. Yeah. It was, uh, kind of anyway, it was, um, it was, it was, it was a thing, but man, I learned a lot about being a patient that I did. I mean, uh, I did. Uh, so yeah. we did the meeting. Um, you told everybody kind of what was going on at the meeting and the community was incredibly supportive and offering you all kinds of best wishes and healing thoughts and prayers and everything, um, which was lovely. And you went back to work and things seemed kind of normal for a while. And I get a, an email from you. Can, can you call me? We need to talk. I'm like, Okay. So I, I missed the first one somehow. I don't know how I missed that. But then the second one that I got, like, did you get this? I called you back in January and there were conversations you have in life and I'll call them average and non-memorable. But you started talking and like, it was early in the morning. I was on my way to work and, and I, you talked my, the whole way into my office and, and I was just listening. I'm like, this is, you need to tell this to other people beyond me. I appreciate you sharing it with me, but this is bigger. We need to podcast this. I really want you to share these insights with the world. And I thought they were you know, so impactful. I walked into my office and I'm like, okay, I just had a life-changing conversation and it, it was amazing. And I need to podcast this. So we've been trying since January to find a date and time and we finally are doing it. So I asked you a few minutes ago what you thought patient advocacy was before your own diagnosis. And then you shared some thoughts with me in January. Can you dive into that a little bit more? Yeah, I mean, I, I could give you a whole bunch. Again, not to, not, I have to be careful because I, I, I think my, my doctors have been taking good care of me. I mean, I feel awesome right now i'm uh, past a year and i can it's really a tribute to them having cared for me um but you know they're not everything has gone super smoothly and that's not it's not anybody's fault necessarily but it, it things have you know things happen and then you kind of and you wonder how they could have been improved and i'll give you kind of an example so um, one of the things that kind of bothered me the most, I guess, was um, 
I had, this is a routine thing to do as it is, I guess, for hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, but when you get tumor genetics, um, well, you get genetics on the tumors and you look to see whether there's any targetable gene mutations. So it's a little different than NHCM, you know, you have gene mutation and we use it for mainly for family screening. Um, but if, and, and as a sidebar, you know, oncology took a different track, I think, than most elements of cardiology. And cardiology, I realize, I guess, again, as having gone through this, in cardiology, we're really good at doing these mega trials with thousands and thousands of people and kind of lumping people together and saying, you're kind of like this person and these patients need this medicine. And we deal with it all the time in clinic. Why am I on this dose of cholesterol medicine? It seems too high for me. And like, well, like we study 10,000 people and this is the best dose for you probably because you're kind of like this person who should, the oncology took a different track. I think they, they kind of focus more on these smaller scale studies with more nuanced phenotyping and figuring out this person's a lot, this tumor is a lot different than this tumor and let's treat this tumor with that. So they took a more personalized approach, which has a lot of benefits to it, I think. Um, you know, they don't have the scale of data that we do in cardiology, but they have much more kind of personalized stuff. So part of this is um, doing genetics on these tumors and figuring out what may be targetable. So I got my genetics back and they were actually, um, you know, most of the time for the thing that I have, um, there is, you know, the genetics um, will show some driver mutations that push the tumor to replicate and mine was negative. And so I, you know, when I was reading up on this, which was, you know, my, the way I compensate for this, um, I, I talked to my oncologist and said, you know, it's just weird that the tumor genetics was negative because I should have, in this instance, a KRAS mutation. And it's important now because Amgen or somebody came out with a KRAS, um, uh, you, know, you know, kind of inhibitor to help with, you know, treat patients with specific mutations. So I was concerned. And so he said, well, let me talk to the molecular group. And so he said, well, they recommended to repeat it just in case it was an error. And I thought, well, how often does that happen? Um, and so then we repeated it with commercial genetics at this time, not, not our in-house genetics. And it came back normal again. And I thought to myself, man, you, you know, when we were waiting for this, you know, it came back negative. I thought, well, the thought experiment is there. If you have actionable things that would prolong life in terms of targets, shouldn't you be sure when the data doesn't fit that you've done it correctly? And so it came back negative. And, but, but I still was concerned on how many patients then, what is the error rate of this? I don't even know. But if they were concerned, then how often does this come up for other patients potentially? not with necessarily what I had, but any kind of thing. So I still was concerned about my genetics. So I contacted a guy in, at, at uh, a prominent cancer center in New York. And I said, um, you've written a paper on this. I thought it was awesome. Thank you for doing that. I had some concerns because I have this disease. And what do you think about this? And he gave me a lot of feedback. It was really nice. Um, and he said that we really should do this, this, and that. So um, I had, and at that time, I was also communicating with a prominent cancer center here in Texas, that's not Dallas. And I said, you know, this guy says that I should do this. And the doctor there said, that's a good idea. We really should do that. And I thought, well, how many times does that happen? That, I'm going to stop you there for a yeah. second, and I'm going to take you back to a cross-section of my life and your experience here. And I don't talk about it too, too much, and I'll do it for another podcast so you can tune in to hear the rest of that story. But I was involved in a research protocol back in the mid-90s, and my sister was too. My sister died, and I went back to the research center, and I said, well, if grandpa, aunt, uncle, 
sister went into fibrillation and died. I think I want to investigate these defibrillators. And I was told that's not a bad idea. And I went, holy shit. Why did I just ask for my own therapy? Yeah. And when you shared that moment with me, I was right back to that moment in my own life going, why am I asking? Why did I have to be the one to bring it up? Well, I mean, that, that was, that was uh, one of the important lessons that I had here. And so I said, uh, man, so, you know, we, we got this other staining done that the, this, that the other provider had suggested and, you know, it came back negative too. And then, you know, everything else was probably going to be research related in, in, in terms of my genetics, but they were nice enough to sort of send it off to, to look at um, for anything else that just might be of research interest, but nothing on the horizon, I don't think in terms of other gene mutations for me. So it kind of came up that in this case, my care team, nothing changed except the thought experiment of, well, we repeated it because we didn't, because it, the answer didn't make sense necessarily. And then there was another layer of testing that we really should have done to make sure there wasn't another line of therapy. And it didn't affect me, but it could have affected the life of somebody else. So, you know, um, and this is one of many examples of when I learned one, I mean, a patient has to be to some degree, their own advocate. Um, and that's unfortunate because the fundamental problem is that there isn't an advocacy group necessarily for what, you know, in my instance, I had to do it myself. And as a doctor and, you know, with this condition, like I felt like I needed to do that. And, but um, a, a patient may not and probably won't have the background to be able to figure out how to navigate the system to figure out what what they what they actually might need to do, and so I thought, wow, and and I and I realized, um, you know, in this processing all this, that this is really what you've been doing for a long time, mm-hmm. and um, you know, it's advocacy um, on behalf of the patient. You know, I've had to be my own patient advocate, but um, to have somebody who's like, um, what you want as a patient is like a big brother, big sister. Mm -hmm. Guides you through the decision-making and what should be done and what, you know, to avoid and what questions to ask. to think about that you haven't thought that you need to think about yet. For sure, for sure. I mean, another like example of how things for me, it didn't matter, but could have mattered for somebody else. I mean, I uh, was getting, I was actually finished my first cycle of chemo. I asked to talk to the pharmacist about my, um, my chemotherapy medicines. And so I said, sure, we'll get you set up with a pharmacist. And so I asked the pharmacist, they said, um, will I be able to have kids after this? And she said, oof, mm. like, um, no. And um, you, she's like, you will have to, you'll have to bank if you want to have kids and you already had one cycle. So we'll have to do that like ASAP if we're gonna do that. And I said, look, I don't really, I said, I have five kids already. And we weren't like, we weren't, planning on having any more than that but man can you imagine if i were a you know if if i were um hopeful to have another kid or a child and had been diagnosed with that and hadn't really received counseling in terms of that that would have been heartbreaking so i was just curious more than anything not not that i was desirous necessarily to have a six kid but I was just, you know, but anyway, it was another example of how you can, the system is designed, not necessarily, you know, the patient's got a lot different questions and concerns maybe than the system is. The system is trying to, or like eradicate your cancer and which is the the patient may be concerned about what their life is going to be like 
living with cancer. But there's other things that might be important to an individual patient that they hadn't thought that the diagnosis might impact. I mean, most patients with what I have, I mean, just I mean, generally with lung cancer are a lot older. They have other comorbid things and, you know, the prognosis is not good. So the idea, I mean, most patients probably die within, within a year you know, with, with metastatic lung cancer. And so I don't think it's necessarily a top concern for 95% of patients getting treated for this because it's just not something that they need to think about. But, um, you know, so it's, but, uh, but anyway, so, so that's why I figured, I, I, I kind of understood advocacy differently after that time. It wasn't really about, you know, an organization just, funneling patients to myectomy centers. It was, it was about getting patients information, things to ask, things to avoid, knowing, preparing the patient in terms of what, how to live with their disease and things like that. So it's, it was way, there was way more to it than I think I appreciated. When you called me in January and you said, I never really thought about patient advocacy before, other than when somebody had already talked to you, they asked me a lot of questions. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I mean, that was, that was, um, and sometimes it was a little annoying, to be honest. I mean, it was 10 years ago, you know, but we would see patients and they are, they had a list of questions, but, you know, those are, um, you know, those are questions that, you know, are important to the patient and, you know, for the care. And I, that happened, I do that for myself now too. I mean, I have a list of questions, but I sure wish I didn't have to reinvent that wheel or somebody else would, you know, could benefit from, you know, what I went through, you know, for, you know, in terms of this, it's funny, you know, we, part of, I mean, there's obviously millions of people have had lung cancer, but, um, you know, the, this disease has, you know, a cure rate of like somewhere between, somewhere close to 0%, you know, I mean, it's just not, it's not, um, I mean, it's, there's just not a, there's not a very, very rare spontaneous cure rate. And some people who have um, stage four disease may have specific immune responses, but, um, but, you know, certainly for what I, the specific subtype I have, it seems to be incurable, but, but uh, you know, the point is like that it's hard. It's, it's, you feel a little neglected because you, it's hard to have an advocacy for medicine, you know, for people who have life-threatening or metastatic lung cancer when within a year or two, everybody's sort of, you know, dying. So, I mean, and, you know, I mean, I don't know how long, obviously I have to live. My son asked me that and we looked at survival curves together and I said, you know, one in, looks like one in 20, one, one in, one in five people is alive at five years with what I have. So, um, but it's hard to advocate in that sense, you know, because, you know, there's not that many people alive with the disease to tell you, you know, to instruct, but, but the, the thought of experiment was still there. How do you, um, take, you know, these kind of uncommon diseases. And it doesn't even have to be, I mean, uncommon is a problem because obviously you don't have, you have to have collaborative expertise across the country or, you know, a few people who really know. I mean, I'll tell you, I've, I've had some really smart doctors with tons of credentials and papers, and they'll totally give me different opinions about my CT scan. You know, what is this? Oh, it does, well, this is that. And, well, actually, this doesn't spread that way and this and that. And I, I'm very confused and I just kind of wing it at this point. But the point is, um, you know, it's, it's, it's for these rare diseases, it's more, I think, you know, what is the, um, what is the, what is the, you know, the aggregated experience? How do you, how do you consolidate all that? And, and really it has to be, um, you know, without an advocacy piece where patients are funneled and then know what to ask and the, the thought leaders in this area then interface with that group, 
um, you don't have that. You can't develop that expertise. So um, everybody works in a vacuum. And which creates problems because there's no communication between the silos. Exactly. And then you get heterogeneity of, of patient care. And that's why an organization like the HCMA is so important because we all, you know, we are, we all kind of are able then to feed back and forth between the advocacy organizations. So. so we talked about something else back in January, and that is kind of the role of advocacy going beyond the matchmaker of the physician and the patient and setting up silos for patients to be treated in. But that communication with industry and regulatory agencies like the FDA or the NIH or other regulatory organizations within other countries about a patient experience having value, but the collective patient voice from a community has power to change how industry involves themselves with us, what products they might offer us, what diagnostics they might offer us, and what's important to us. Like when we held our patient-focused drug development meeting with the FDA and said, hey, we want to tell you what it's really like to be us yeah. so that you can help develop therapies that help people like us. So what do you think about that very complicated interaction between advocacy, patient, clinical care, industry, governance, what are you thinking now? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, uh, you know, it's, um, you know, there, there's a lot of drug development that's not really patient-centered nowadays. You know, it's statin medicines, and these are the things that, you know, the patient doesn't necessarily you know, you know, cholesterol isn't, this isn't a patient-centered outcome generally. Um, but for, you know, development of drugs, like with what you participate in, it's clearly something that's, you know, patient, you know, this is a patient-centered sort of drug pipeline, you know, in terms of pa making patients feel better. And um, advocacy is so important there because, you know, a, a, you know, FDA committee member could look and say, well, look, this is a expensive drug that's not, you know, not proven to, you know, it just helps symptoms or something. And I'm not going to vote for this. But so having a, you know, having patient voices heard is so important to have people on the committee and for industry to understand the role of the, you know, these therapeutics that are being put forward. Uh, um, you know, it, it's, it's, it's not, it gives a voice to the patients to have a larger, um, advocacy group, um, fight for them. And, you know, we, I, I, this came up the last visit I have my oncologist, I said, you know, and this is like, you know, a little bit, you know, nuanced again, but I said, you know, um, I saw there was this clinical trial in the New England Journal of a new drug. It was a LAG3 antibody, monoclonal that helps um, metastatic melanoma dramatically. And, and the data that I was, you know, that I've looked at from, you know, the, all the papers that I pulled on my own tumor, that this protein is important in terms of my body not clearing my tumor. And I wanted, I was curious about access to that. And, um, you know, he said, well, you know, I don't know, there's, there's probably ongoing trials and this, you know, I, thought, I might be dead before all that transpires. And, um, you know, I, you know, I'd really like compassionate use drug if, if it came to it. And how would we go about that? But, um, you know, again, going back to advocacy, that is something that most patients with lung cancer or invasive mucinous adenocarcinoma lung are not going to know, man, this lag three, you know, is, a, is an immune response evasion protein that seems to be upregulated with this particular thing. And this drug just came out for metastolic melanoma. That could really help me. I should ask about that. 
Um, yeah, that's not going to be your average patient. Yeah, but um, but that is where you know interface of you know an organization with this scope and size like your organization can interface with you know pharma or providers and figure out this is an important thing and how can we look into now obviously the scenario is different in the time course of how important this is like you know it's you know it's it, it would be great for me to get it before i died kind of thing so that, that time course is short shorter maybe than but but the point is like you need to have one person it's hard to get whole industry to move unless you're backed up with as your organization is with thousands of voices and you know um There's power in numbers yeah and 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 thought leaders in the field and so so that that is a that is so important in terms of advocacy i mean the people who can participate in that i just i just say that um had this came up the other day in clinic there was a mom who's had hcm her daughter has well she presumably has hcm but but her daughter has hcm and she really wants her to get into the into more into advocacy and call us know, up get her in yeah well um you know i, I you know it, it's so important to do it's um so the the this space is evolving and there was a time when the concept of patient advocacy our voice wasn't heard in the design of clinical trials our voice wasn't heard in, at the fda that our voice wasn't heard even within hospital systems. I mean, there's been some massive advantages of the last 20 years of, you know, having um, patient advocates actually be on premises in hospitals even. So we're evolving, um, but something happened between our first conversation on this topic and today, um, I was invited to a follow-up meeting held by the FDA for those organizations who have already completed the patient-focused drug development process. And I was very excited to be invited to that meeting to be asked by the FDA, what else can we do to engage? And there were probably 150 people on the call and me being typical soft-spoken opinion to herself, Jersey girl said, well, Number one, you heard what our burden is, but you never ask us about the label or how it's written or where it should be made available or how we should be pricing this. You don't ask us any of that. And they said, well, we're under, you know, a, an arrangement with the manufacturer and it's regulatory. I said, well, there's an easy solution. We changed the regulation. And they kind of looked at me and they said, oh, okay, well, how would you change it? I said, we would sign an NDA that we couldn't disclose any information that industry is providing to you. And we could be at the table listening and providing input as it's happening rather than having to respond to it after it's done. I, everybody jumped in. Yes, 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 yes. All the other organizations jumped in. We would love to see that. So FDA, please give us the opportunity as patient advocates to get involved earlier. We want to be helpful. We want to be partnering with industry in a positive and productive way to bring therapies as quickly as possible. And as you very clearly laid out, not everybody can wait. And there should be a very specific pathway open for evaluation of those who might benefit from a therapy. Maybe like you did yourself, you're a citizen scientist, even though you are a scientist, here you're a citizen scientist saying, this is my situation, here's the data, here's how I think I can benefit, could I please get access? And there should be an avenue for that. Right now there's not, but there should be, why not? We could find things out that might help the industry move forward faster. We could find out things that would help the FDA make their decisions more efficiently with actual data and feedback from patients. In, in an organized fashion, it can't be, you know, the Wild West, there has to be a system set up so that we can monitor everything. But when you have no other choices, 
and the option is not a good one, you know, where would I be if we didn't have people willing to be transplant recipients early on, knowing that their survival was going to be short because anti-rejection meds weren't great. We all have to decide when it's our turn to step up and experiment a little on ourselves to try to save our own lives. And we should be given the ability to do that as safely as possible. And I want you to have a chance to do that because I kind of want to keep you here for a really, really long time, my friend. And we want others to have similar opportunities. So we have a long way to go in advocacy, but I think your original impression on what that meant 10 years ago versus what you believe it means today changes, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, it's it's very much a, I mean, I, 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 I think until you live it, and you don't have it, you don't understand um, how critical it is, you know, for particularly for, um, you know, there, there's, there's, there's vulnerable populations here. There are people who are in, you know, um, in, who have a rare disease, where there's just not enough information or providers. And um, there's people who are in, you know, who have a, you know, a, a condition that's, you know, uh, severe and life-threatening and the pace at which movement occur, needs to occur sometimes could, um, you know, preclude like actually, you know, glossing over important details and, you know, things, for example, like with what happened with the the pharmacist and my, you know, the things move fast and we forget because we don't have a clear necessarily all these 20 things have to be done and we'll get all of these done. So these, this, the, the populations I think are most at risk are, you know, people where there's not a ton of information or you have siloed information within, you know, specific providers. Uh, and then, and then, um, and then, and then life-threatening diseases where things have to move quickly, but, um, you know, we need to make sure that they move quickly and safely and correctly. We certainly don't want to just open the vaults and let everybody try what they think that they should try. We, we saw a lot of that during COVID, didn't we? Yeah. Oh, this, this'll work. No, there's no, no that won't work. And all of the things that the masses came out and said, no, I don't think that's going to work, pretty much played out exactly as such. So you need some, you need some oversight. You need some, some scientific body to evaluate whether a particular patient could be considered for a particular medication. And industry needs to support this option as well. We know that they can be vilified quite easily if there's an unforeseen consequence of a, a therapy. Um, we know that that's where some of those commercials come from and we'll just leave it at that. But we need everybody to figure out what their risk tolerance is as individuals when necessary and have a, a methodology in place that regulatory agencies, industry, patients, patient advocates are all in line with and, and I think we're coming to a day where that can happen. And I think we're also coming to a day where the concept of patient advocacy has grown exponentially. It truly has. Um, we're, not, we're not here as advocates to play doctor. We're not here to play nurse. We don't play them on TV either, which is a line I often use. We're here to just kind of bring it down to logical steps, but it, it's not always simple. You need a lot of data points and need to explain to people why you're collecting data points, what the information is that's important to them to communicate back to their doctors on some of the clinical aspects, but then also to get into that true shared decision-making process, which does not occur in a silo. If you're going to be involved in informed or I'm not, I'm sorry, shared decision. I always get informed consent and shared decision. They kind of cross over, but they're different. 
But if you're going to do shared decision making, and you as physician in hypertrophic cardiomyopathy has this reservoir of knowledge and information, and you're sharing some of that with a patient to help them make a decision, it's not always the data points that they need to hear. So they need to understand what the options really are and what some of the consequences of those are. Remember early on in alcohol septal ablation experience. Well, if it fails, you can just go get a myectomy. Okay. Except for the fact that then you're probably going to be pacemaker dependent for the rest of your life and have those consequences as well. But they didn't bring that up at the time that they said, well, just try it first. So you have to understand all of the consequences of all of the decisions so that you can participate in shared decision. Um, and sometimes people were willing to take that risk knowing. Other times it was withheld. So you need to know all of the options as best you can prepare yourself. And then you make the decision for yourself. So the last year has probably not been a very easy one for you in many, many, many ways. But there's always these moments, these, these epiphanies, these, ah, this is what the whole thing's all about. What have you learned in the last year? I mean, uh, we talked about advocacy, which I think is so important. I tell patients now, never be shy about soliciting other opinions because being your own advocate is so important. Um, even in what sounds like super mundane things, do I need a, do I need a heart cath? Do I need a cholesterol medicine? You need to feel comfortable with that um, in never... And never, um, you know, don't feel bad about asking for additional opinions. Um, you know, the, I learned a lot about the medical system from the inside. Um, it's not always uh, pleasant. Uh, and, um, you know, I, I, I think, you know, I kind of, um, you know, are more... You know, uh, patients and myself, you know, they want to feel valued and feel like, um, you know, they want to feel like there's a future. There's, there's a, um, there's a reason why they're going through everything. And um, so, you, there's a, there's a person on the other end of the problem, and. Um, it's not always as a doctor as easy as prescribing a medication, and there's there's um, there's a lot there's a lot more going on. There's, there's, there's a lot also, more going on. There's also the beyond the patient. There's all of those around us, our family, our friends, those who are trying to be supportive, those who are incredibly supportive, those who. <laughs> Maybe not always so supportive, yeah. but you, you know, I go through my experience with, okay, I'm either going to be gone in a couple of months or I'm going to get a heart transplant. And after the transplant, you wonder, well, the what ifs. It's, just, it's more than you. And it's, it's more than that moment in time to say, what is this all about? For me, the moment was, I want to leave this place a little bit better than I found it. And I'm going to work every day that I'm given to do that. Yeah. And while I'm doing it, I'm going to try to enjoy this thing that we have in life and make the most of it and not miss out on opportunities to do the things that bring joy. That's what I learned from almost dying. Yeah. Um, I don't know if that's a good lesson, bad lesson, it's just what I figured out. And, and I found out something else that you can go on vacation for 10 whole days and not look at emails and the world does continue to, to revolve. Yeah. It's awesome. Highly recommend it. So what, what do you hope the world looks like for your kids when they're your age? Um, you know, I, 
there's just so much going on in the world now. Mm, true. And, uh, uh, so I don't know what, you know, I don't know what the future holds for, you know, what the, what the worldview is going to look like. Um, I, uh, big question. I just kind of uh, can only kind of in part, you know, trying to spend a lot of time with my kids and trying to get them to, um, you know, essentially remember me. I think they're going to be really proud of their dad. And I think they are very proud of your their dad because you have done something very difficult and you've been vulnerable you've shared some people would keep things quiet to be stoic i don't think there's a lot of value in that i think by sharing uncertainty and pain you build power you let people know that you're being as good as you can be in that moment in that day and we hope that things evolve fast enough to cure all diseases and yeah. to give us all quality and length of life. But we know that that's not assured for a thousand different reasons. And understanding the power of the human spirit and the power of the human voice to facilitate change. I think that's pretty amazing. Yeah, I've been, you know, since this all began, I mean, the ability of people to be selfless with their time and concern was what struck me the most. Um, how people would come together to, um, you know, to be with somebody who's ill. That was the most heartening thing I, I think I, I appreciated in this, in this last year. And I think a lot of those with chronic illness, be them more benign and survivable or more malignant and the clock is ticking. I think there's those amazing people in our lives that come around us and, and just envelop us with empathy and caring and support, not sympathy. We don't need that. We need empathetic people who give a damn and will say it and remind us of all the good. Where we, it's really easy, especially in today's world, to look at the negative people or the people who didn't match up to what you expected them to do or you wanted them to do. And we focus on the people who don't when we really need to focus on the few that do, because those are the few that really matter. That's how I felt anyway. Aslan, this has been a phenomenal conversation. I really love that you shared it it says so much about you and i know that every single person that listens to this is going to be cheering you on and hoping that you defy odds and it can happen i've seen some pretty crazy things happen when they shouldn't have happened so let's hope for the best and understand that the best doesn't always happen yeah so there's a whole other conversation I'd love to have someday. I'm looking up now at my, my dad's picture and his ashes. That we need to normalize conversations about serious illness and impending death. That it doesn't have to be something that you avoid. You can have a conversation my dad stopped dialysis. We knew what that meant. And he did it knowing. And he did it with bravery. And I will always 
always consider my father the bravest son of a gun I ever knew. And he went out with jokes and smiles and sarcastic comments for oh so many, because that was my dad. Um, the guys who on his ambulance squad that moved him from his house to my house to hospice. He cursed at all of them and they were rolling him out. Hey, you son of a bitch. What are you doing? Yeah, you've always been crazy. Like silly little comments that made them know that that was my dad. It wasn't yeah. some fluffy version of a dying man. That was him. And I think we all just need to be ourselves until we're not here anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Maintaining humanity in the face of being ill is something um, <clears throat> that I don't think medicine always handles very well, particularly as people are dying. It's easy to medicalize them and not regard them, see their humanity anymore. That's been a sad experience that I've noticed. It's true, but we try to make the world what we want it to be, not always what it is. So write your own book. All right, Aslan, thank you from the bottom of both of my hearts for, <laughs> for participating today. today. And um, this has truly been a special episode of Tales from the Heart. Thank you so much. Thanks. Bye, Lisa. Bye-bye. Have you enjoyed this episode of Tales from the Heart? We hope so. Please visit us at 4hcm.org. Become a member, become a donor, become a volunteer. Great news, everybody. HCM Academy is now available online. What is it? It includes online sessions, learning about hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, patient stories about HCM and their management, and an opportunity to join online live with an HCM specialist to go over the slides, ask questions, and dig deeper into your understanding and knowledge of HCM. All CME courses are free, and you can find them at 4hcm.org or at thehcmacademy.com. The Big Hearted Warrior Tour continues. For the latest dates, please check 4hcm.org. And thanks to our sponsors, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Cytokinetics, Invitae, and Austin Scientific. Did you know discussion groups are available at 4hcm.org Monday through Friday? Almost every day you can find a discussion group, whether you're interested in learning more about ICDs, pre-myectomy, screening your family. There's a discussion group for you. Even if you just want to learn how to balance your mental health, we have that too. So please join us for one of our live discussion groups moderated by a peer volunteer and you can sign up in advance at 4hcm.org just check the calendar for events. Please contact the Hypertrophic Cardiomyopathy Association at 4hcm.org or by calling our office at 973-983-7429. You can contact the HCMA by email at support at 4hcm.org. Tales from the Heart, a podcast from the HCMA, is made possible through sponsorship from Boston Scientific, Cytokinetics, Tanaya, Invitae, and Boston Scientific.